This episode is brought to you by Star Lion Thieves of the Red Knight, an indie book by a black author named Leon Lankford. Star Lion is about a gravity-manipulating teen, Jordan Harris, who is arrested for vigilante activity, who is then forced to choose between jail and joining a superhero training academy. This book can be found on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and even an ebook audiobook combo on blurred.com. This episode is brought to you by Star Lion Thieves of the Red Knight, an indie book by a black author named Leon Lankford. Star Lion is about a gravity-manipulating teen, Jordan Harris, who is arrested for vigilante activity, who is then forced to choose between jail and joining a superhero training academy. This book can be found on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and even an ebook audiobook combo on blurred.com. Blurred up, blurred up. Welcome to the show where we talk about nerd culture from a BPOV, a black POV. I am your host, Brendan. You know when planets only line up during certain times of the year, decade, or century? Like just a couple of weeks ago, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, and the moon were lined up and you could see them with the naked eye. Anyway, when I last recorded, let me check my watch, a month ago, (laughs) my plan was to record that Justice League anniversary show and record a whole nother show about all the tv shows that came out y'all were going to get two shows that week i actually scripted the second show it's literally sitting in my google docs but unfortunately times didn't line up and it was difficult to line things up again until now i used to get really bummed about missing the perfect time when people were talking about something i offered you a chance when we could have done something and you blew it But the thing about this industry these days is that there's always something to talk about. And sometimes new information is revealed about a hot issue after the initial hype. And I think we have a large enough fan base for people to listen regardless of timing. And on that note, I announced it on social media, but our show has reached over 10,000 listens worldwide, which is an amazing milestone. I know that media consumption is pushing towards bite-sized pieces, especially with video, And I'm thinking about how to do that in the future, but it is heartwarming to know that you all are listening to us and listening for a large part of these shows. I know these are long and you got things to do. Again, if you are liking what you're hearing, give us a share and please rate and review on your streaming service of choice. If you have any listener questions, your best bet is my DMs on IG at B-L-E-R-D period U-P. On that note, I'm going to do a non-spoiler and spoiler review of Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm especially looking forward to this because part of this will be fueled by listener questions. I put the feelers out on IG and got some good questions back, so stay tuned. I actually recorded this with Ali Soko, who collaborated with me on the Candyman review, as well as Tiara, who has been on the show a few times. We had a great discussion. But there were some audio issues, so for the sake of an easier listening experience, I am re-recording this solo this time. Three is the magic number, but unfortunately we couldn't get that together this time. I appreciate them, but I didn't want to ask them to give even more of their time and energy. So without further ado, let's get started. And of course, let's set that stage. 
Spider-Man No Way Home is the conclusion of the Home Trilogy and a whole arc for Peter Parker. This also completes the fourth solo trilogy in the MCU. And when I look at those other trilogies, Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America, I don't see those individual characters as changed as Peter Parker is at the end of this movie. Thor's personality and growth doesn't change a whole lot from the first film. Infinity War changed him the most. Iron Man and Cap's arcs stretch across their movies, Civil War, and the Avengers, whereas Peter's development is largely focused in these solo films. With Homecoming, he's overly ambitious to prove himself to Tony Stark. With Far From Home, he's burdened with the notion of replacing him and tries to pass that responsibility off to someone else. Without spoiling anything, No Way Home presents brand new challenges to Peter that change him forever. One of my issues with Far From Home, looking back, is how considerable the threat seemed to Spider-Man at that stage of his heroism. This was initially an Avengers-level threat rested exclusively on Spider-Man's shoulders. Marvel tried to explain why a few heroes weren't available. I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, sir. Bitch, please, you've been to space. I know, but that was an accident, sir. Come on, there's gotta be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Okay, um, Doctor Strange. Unavailable. Captain Marvel. Don't invoke her name. But you're telling me you couldn't get any of the 50 plus heroes that wound up in Endgame? Maybe Sam was too busy facing his boat. I, I don't know. Homecoming was an appropriate level of movie for Spider-Man. Even Stark said the situation is below their pay grade. And the focus was on him trying to prove himself and it focused on his relationships. No Way Home, no Way Home is bigger in scope than the previous films, but also manages to be small at the same time. And I have to give points for that kind of balance. While we're on balance, I also have to give credit to the handling of the number of characters put into this movie. I said it on at least one of the reviews this year that I'm worried that Marvel is cramming too much into these movies in order to keep upping the ante. I didn't love Shang-Chi's third act. Eternals just had too much of everything. If you've been following the leaks and trailers for this new Spider-Man film, you know that this movie has some high and unique ambitions. And I think by and large, they pulled it off. But again, this film never loses its focus on Peter Parker and gives Tom Holland some excellent material to work with. This is undoubtedly his best performance to date. With the other two Spider-Man actors, they have done a pretty good job with serious moments. Toby's ugly cry at the end of Spider-Man 3 was more comical to me in the theater at the time than evoking actual sadness. I think Andrew Garfield's scene with Gwen is ironically one of the highlights of that series. But for Holland, when the drama hit in any way, in No Way Home, he barely missed a step. This movie got Peter Parker down pretty well. Moving on, you ever notice how Peter takes off his mask too much throughout all of these movies? He was always concerned about being discovered. Obviously, contractually, the actors probably have to expose their face a certain number of times. And that's probably also the best way to show emotion in a live action setting compared to how a comic could. But it's always been weird within the context of the movie itself. But now that Peter Parker is famous, he doesn't really need to hide that anymore. This movie created a reason to make that make sense. Man, anyway, I'm kind of gushing over this movie. I'm really excited to get into the spoilers. So let me just give you my, my rating and we'll get to it. I'm going to give No Way Home an enthusiastic 3.5 out of 5. Wait, 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 what? What? Who was that? You know who it is. You didn't think it would be that easy, did you? I watched from behind Brendan's fanboy eyes, watched him grin ear to ear like a schoolboy at the fan service. You think that's enough? Okay, okay. I'll stop with the voice. <laughs> 
I do legitimately have some issues with this movie. They had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. But before I go into that, I will say that No Way Home to me is the best phase four film to date, which isn't necessarily a high bar to clear in my opinion, but it is the only one that I actually wanted to rewatch. And I did. To explain my rating system for people who are not happy with my 3.5, three out of five is decent. Four is great. Five is perfect. And for those who say, well, there is no perfect movie. Well, I don't know what multiverse you're listening from, but Aliens does exist in my world. So anyway, between a three and a four is good. A 3.5 is good to me. If I were to rank the movies, I would still have Spider-Verse as my number one, Spider-Man 2 as my number two, Homecoming number three, No Way Home number four, the original Spider-Man next under that, Far From Home under that, Spider-Man 3 under that, Amazing Spider-Man, and it's pretty much tied with Amazing Spider-Man 2. But like I said, I do have some issues. Some of them are non-spoilery and some are, so I'll save them for later. So number one, there is decent action, particularly a visually striking scene at the end of the first act, but I think now that the trilogy is finished, I can safely point out a pattern. What I've noticed, particularly after rewatching the Sam Raimi films, is how the action is shot and choreographed. Dated compositing and weird shots in front of the US flag notwithstanding, I think the way Raimi framed Spider-Man, along with that music, really puts you in awe of the character and what he's doing. Even the new video games took cues from the Raimi series. The action scenes in the Raimi films are iconic. The subway scene with Dr. Octopus still hasn't been topped in 17 years. Even leading up to that fight, there was a wide-angle shot of Spider-Man swinging through the city, and as the camera pulls back, it ends up being a reflection in Doc Ock's sunglasses as he watches and waits. There is just a more creative comic book flair that I appreciate more on the rewatch, and I wish more of that was added into the MCU franchise. This new series has focused more on the drama, and it has paid off. I really like the whole cast. I really like Peter Parker. But with this new set of movies, I want to be amazed by Spider-Man. Does that make sense? I'll give you a solid example. In this movie, Peter got into this crouchy hero pose often in the movie. It felt forced. It was almost like the director was asking Holland to compensate for his lack of creativity in framing the character or the beginning of fights. Even the actual locations weren't that impressive to me. Number two, remember how I told y'all that Tom Holland can't look like a high schooler for much longer? There are a couple of shots where he looks like a man in his mid-20s, but more importantly than that now, I'm turning that attention towards how naive and at this point arrogant he is. In Homecoming, it was kind of cute with him thinking he can handle Vulture alone. Far from home, getting some time away from it, it was kind of a head scratcher with him receiving a multi-billion dollar weapon deployment system from Tony Stark, but also weird that he just gave this off to a stranger instead of the countless heroes he fought alongside with. Now, during my talk with Ali Soko and Tiara, they did say, but he's a kid. He's going to be stupid. I understand that, but Peter has been through too many movies now where he should have learned a long time ago that with great power comes great responsibility. With this movie, virtually everyone is so out of their depth with the immediate situation, and Peter steps in again, like, I got it. 
And needless to say, bad things happen. This home trilogy should be called the Peter Steyo ass at home trilogy. Even saying this out loud is getting me hot. His decisions in this movie are literally the worst in Spider-Man movie history. I'm going to quote friend of the show, Jess Kroll, one of my favorite writers, period. Uh, he's over at Pop Mythology, and he said, Although through this setup, No Way Home does a good job introducing its themes and relationships, the majority of the first act feels like thin, frayed strings leading the characters where they need to be for the story to progress. Strings that would immediately fall apart with even the slightest bit of resistance. Superhero movies in particular are prone to crumbling to logic, yet No Way Home is noticeably light. The real shame in the weakness of No Way Home's plot is that most of the scenes that happen after the characters are rushed into place are excellent. And I agree. The strength of this movie is how well the relationships are written, but the gears that get these people together is the opposite to me. Again, the Raimi trilogy was better about this. Peter was slightly more responsible for the problems in the third film, but usually things happened to him that he had to figure out, but he wasn't directly responsible for the problems. I think by the end of No Way Home, Peter is no longer Spider-Boy. He's pretty much Spider-Man now, and I hope the new arc leans into that because I don't think I can handle another one of his naive decisions fucking things up for everyone. It became annoying in this movie, as opposed to endearing. The consequences are too severe for him not to learn a lasting lesson this time. The rest of my issues I will save for the spoiler section, because at least one of them is world-breaking. But before we go on to that, I do want to talk about something. If you don't know anything about this movie, and you're going in cold, you're going to be really pleasantly surprised. I actually went with some people who didn't know anything, and I envy that. The Korean audience that I saw this movie with genuinely gasped and clapped. I tweeted out that everything I have learned about this movie has been against my will. Longtime listeners know I purposefully avoid trailers and news about these movies. Marvel has been the hottest brand for years. The marketing is the name itself, especially if you tie Spider-Man into it. I know it's a business and marketing gets butts in the seats, but man, I think this was one of the worst marketing campaign and leak cycles to date. There were several plot points that I would have loved to see in the theater for the first time, which we'll get into. Imagine if it were leaked that Vulture was Liz's dad before Homecoming came out. That was really the only twist in that movie, and it would have diminished the shock. For me, at least four major shocks of No Way Home were taken from me. It's hard to be a content creator and be as wowed by these movies and shows simultaneously with all this news coming out. And the end credit stinger was a whole ass trailer that I literally closed my eyes and did the la 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 like in Dumb and Dumber. Disney is the biggest movie corporation in the world. I want them to try a new approach with the marketing and just give us just enough to be excited, but do so creatively. The 1979 Alien trailer is one of my favorites. They didn't even show the monster in that trailer and it gets you hype for what's going to happen. Movie studios, I'm begging you, be creative, but leak very little and see who shows up. With the pandemic, this is a good time to try things out. Look at Candyman. I didn't love that movie, but damn, was that marketing inventive. It's ironic that there's a sweeping online campaign about not spoiling this movie when people and content creators have been sharing leaked casting news and photos and footage for nearly a year. 
anyone listening to my show who has participated in that, I want you to think about what does that mean to you? How can we do better going forward? I'm certainly considering how I've been a part of that and how I can change for myself and for my audience. Because after this movie and having those shocks robbed, I do want to do better in my consumption and what I also share. Okay, it is spoiler time. If you haven't seen this movie, please shut it off now. If you don't care, I'm going to count down. Here we go. Three, two, one. I'm going to try to go down my spoiler thoughts chronologically, and I hope you guys dig it. Number one, Matt Murdock is in the MCU. Man, that brick catch was awesome. How did you do that? I'm a really good lawyer. Just amazing timing as someone else from the Netflix series popped up this week in another show. I don't want to give away too much on that. And it was cool that Jon Favreau was in this scene because he was Foggy Nelson in the Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. And this connects us to our first listener question, which comes from Karib Saram on Instagram. And he asked, should the franchise continue? What direction do you think it'll go after this? Well, Peter is back to being a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, which we'll get to a bit later, but that's great. What's different about this now is that he has very little support. May and or MJ helped ground him, but he lost one of them permanently, and he's too afraid to get the other one involved now. I'm curious about what connection he makes going forward, because this series has been about his connections, his relationships. Will he let go of his non-superhero friends and focus on the superhuman relationships like with Daredevil? Um... How did Flash write and publish a book so quickly? Ali said in our recording that Flash just was writing fan fiction. And once the news about Peter came out, he immediately just put all that to book book form, which I, that's, that's pretty funny. I, I, it would have been cool if they exposed him for that. Um, Wong is Sorcerer Supreme on a technicality. He seems more level-headed than Doctor Strange. So this actually makes me happy considering Strange messing things up. Strange really frustrated me in this movie. This movie reminded me of that Rick and Morty episode where Morty convinced Rick to make that love potion and he destroyed the world and then yelled at Morty about it. Are you kidding me, Morty? You're gonna try to take the high road on this one? You, you, you're you, a little creep, Morty. All right, fine. I should have just listened to you when you refused to make the serum. I'm willing to accept my part of the blame for this, Rick, but I'll tell you something, you know what? You gotta accept your part of the blame. I'm not the one who fouled up the serum. I'm not the one who... who, who, who Strange, you are the adult the one with the most knowledge on all of this. Strange is the man who defeated Dormammu, played the long game with Thanos, one of the smartest beings in the universe, yet he succumbed to the whims of a child before the spell and during the spell. Why was Peter even in the same room? Then he gets humbled on his own turf by this kid. It was cute how that was done, though. Math. You want math? Here's some math. Here's what Strange should have said. Peter. There are infinite realities. These villains infinitely live and die. You infinitely save and don't save them. They infinitely don't become villains. This is not a big deal. That would have ended this movie in an hour. (laughs) Even Strange's callous speech to Peter about this is your fault. You're living two lives. Bruh, Strange's life experience is completely different. He's middle-aged. He's lived a regular life, a privileged one at that as a world-class doctor. Now he's a sorcerer 
with no known family in a pimped out house and magic. It's very easy for him to talk down to Peter. So I didn't like that. But I did have fun with his exchange with Peter, uh, calling him Steven. That feels weird, but I'll allow it. I thought Spider-Man unconsciously keeping the box away from Doctor Strange is pretty cool. Apparently, in the IMAX version, you can see Spidey Sense lines around his head. So for those who missed that, I encourage you to see it in IMAX or wait till it comes on TV. You can hopefully see the entire shot. Let's go to the villains. I was happy that Norman said the meme phrase. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. The only real surprise that wasn't taken from me was that Norman had a bigger role in this film than I had anticipated. Let's talk about William Defoe, or as excellent graphic designer Boss Logic called him, William DeGoat. This was his best Goblin performance. He was menacing. I knew it would be Norman who would turn and mess all this up. He was way too jolly. And Goblin cheesing as Peter punched him was awesome. It reminded me of Heath Ledger's Joker performance in The Dark Knight. Just a phenomenal actor. And that leads us to our next listener question from Khadija. I haven't forgotten about Dark Matter, but this has been a really busy time right now. I've actually turned to reading Stoicism, but enough about that. She asked, who is our favorite Spidey villain and why? And easily, it's going to be Norman Osborn. He's a formidable fighter, of course, but he knows the most about Peter Parker and goes for the heart. Parker must be educated. What do I do? Instruct him in the matters of loss and pain. Make him suffer. Make him wish he were dead. Yes. And then grant his wish. But how? The cunning warrior attacks neither body nor mind. Tell me how! The heart, Osborne. First, we attack his heart. He's like Spider-Man's Joker, but with superpowers. Let's talk about Aunt May. At first, I was upset when May jumped up super bubbly after being hit by the glider and blown up. I was like, why is she not dead? And then I was like, May is dead? What did Strange say? Be careful what you wish for, because I was not happy that she died. This brings up one of my issues with the film. On one hand, Holland really sold that pain, especially when he cried with his friends and the camera stayed with them to really let you sit with those emotions. This is much better than the Mr. Stark, I don't feel too good scene from Infinity War or him crying in Endgame. Tom Holland has really grown as an actor. However, why did Peter bring five supervillains around his aunt in the first place? Why not send her somewhere, like back to her apartment? The police talked about charging May with child endangerment, and they're right. She endangered herself and the person she was supposed to be a guardian over with her idealism. While we're here, is anyone going to tell me how Peter got the five supervillains out of the magic prison by himself in the basement of a magic house? Don't worry, I'll wait. Why wouldn't Peter or May call the other Avengers? Ant-Man could have helped with Otto. Banner could have helped with Connors, Norman, Max, and Sandman. I did dig the plot twist, though, because I did notice that things were kind of too happy for Spider-Man for these last two movies. Someone had to go. And once again, I reference Jess Kroll at Pop Mythology. He brought up the idea of fixed points from the What If series. Someone close to Peter dying is a fixed point for his progression as a hero. Moving on. Let's get to the other spider guys. I think the other spider men sharing their experiences with loss was really touching. 
MJ testing Garfield with the bread was hilarious. Uh, him getting the cobwebs. McGuire and Garfield testing themselves out, shooting webs in the house was really fun. A funny thing, though, McGuire said that curing people is what they do. But let's talk about that. Toby cured Norman Osborn with death. <laughs> he cured Octavius with death. Literally the only villain who made it out alive in the Raimi series was Sandman. Garfield killed Electro. He overloaded him with, with energy until he blew up. The dialogue during these scenes, though, finally addressing the web shooters versus the organic webs was great. Ned was afraid of becoming a villain. But in the comics, Ned Lee does become the Hobgoblin for a short time. I mean, he was brainwashed, but maybe that'll come into play later. On the subject of Ned, he has magic. And I think this was introduced better than Aquafina. It was set up and there were actual flaws to his abilities as the lizard got through. And it wasn't Ned who really helped save the day like Aquafina's arrow did. In short, it feels weird, but I'll allow it. Even the sling ring that Ned had is more magical than Ned himself. Anyone can really use that ring. It just requires concentration. And Ned's a genius, so... Okay. To the villains. They almost had a Sinister Six roster, but then I realized who the sixth villain is. Peter. <laughs> Jay Jonah was right. Everywhere Spider-Man goes, chaos and calamity follow. Otto had good intentions when he created the arms and the reactor. Connors had good intentions when he tried to grow his arm back and, and cure humanity. Side note, the cure for Connors and the Amazing Spider-Man movie was a bluish purple gas, not green. His lizard transformation was green. So it was interesting that it was green in this movie. Back to J. Jonah and Peter being a villain, though. Why would Peter choose a national monument for his grand battle? It's away from people. Good. But still, couldn't they go anywhere else, especially with the powers of the sling ring? And about that Statue of Liberty, in the latest Hawkeye episode, Kate tells Yelena that she should visit the new and improved Statue of Liberty. Hawkeye takes place in 2025, two years after the events of No Way Home, which is canonically set in 2023. So along with the other revelation in this week's show, that's some damn fine synergy. Now, at the very end of this film we have the team-up. The team-up at the end was fun. The short jump from the ledge to the poses on the statue were really cool. But then it was pretty much just a pass the MacGuffin around, and you can't help, I couldn't help but want a little more from this legendary team-up. Moving on to the team-up and the healing, Peter told the healed Sandman to stand inside of the Statue of Liberty, head to stay safe. And Electro shocked the hell out of it seconds later. The sand in there probably acted as uh, an insulator, but the top of it wasn't. Uh, it's a slight nitpick, but Sandman should probably be dead. <laughs> also, he was sand for the entire time, which was peculiar. Ali said that they probably used old footage of him once he got cured. The same was with Iphens, who played the lizard, instead of getting the actors on set. They probably, you know, obviously did the voice work, but they probably weren't physically there. Some more funny stuff. Max said that his Peter was just a kid. At the time of this filming, Andrew Garfield is 38 years old. <laughs> he was 30 in the movie when he fought Electro. So I thought that was funny. Another plot hole that I learned about after listening to the Double Toasted podcast is that Electro doesn't really know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Yes, he fought Spider-Man in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, but Dane DeHaan never told him that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. And Electro never learned about Peter Parker's identity in the film. 
So that is world-breaking, isn't it? I think the second most emotional moment for me was Andrew Garfield saving MJ. It sucks that his movie's stories weren't great because he is a great actor. He really sold that pain, that PTSD, that trauma. Moving on to the end with Doctor Strange trying to seal up the breaches in the sky, we did see some villains who were trying to come through. I think everyone noticed Craven the Hunter. Apparently, Marvel was going to have Craven the Hunter as the lead villain in No Way Home if they could not get all the actors for this movie. And of course, he's supposed to be played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, who was Quicksilver in the MCU. Um, and maybe we'll see him in future films. Um, the awkward goodbye between the, the Spider-Men was sweet. It almost felt meta with Tom thanking the actors for laying the road that he is now swinging over. Um, some nitpicks. How does Happy know May through Spider-Man now? That will probably never get explained, but who knows? Uh, let's see what else is there. I did not like the new shiny suit. You can hate me now, but this ain't a Puff Daddy video. Honestly, the Night Monkey suit is my favorite suit so far, and it's tactical, considering the villain, sometimes you want to be harder to see, but that shiny suit has to go. I don't want to see a two-hour movie with him in that suit. I'm sorry. Uh, now, let's get to some heavy issues I have with this film. I did want to point out Ali Soko's point about the final spell. Now, we know that Peter asked Doctor Strange to make the world forget about Peter Parker, but wouldn't it have been smarter to ask Doctor Strange to forget about Spider-Man. In this way, Peter can still have his life with his friends and his family, go to school, and he can just don the costume and just make new memories for those people, and it would have been easier for him. And again, it's strange that a genius like Peter and a genius like Doctor Strange would not have come to that conclusion. And it's unfortunate that they did not explain why that would not have been possible. This is similar to Tony Stark dying in Endgame. Everyone is sad over the scene, but the easy fix is laying in the dirt next to him and no one is telling the audience why it can't be used. And I feel that same way about this. If you wipe away every memory of Peter Parker, does that erase the videos, pictures, public records, government records, etc.? Strange said verbatim, that he's going to erase every memory. He never said record. I watched the movie twice. But if the memories include photos, records, etc., then I can let it go. Comic book magic, it's fine. But if Peter's records are erased and he's cut off from Stark, how does he get an apartment at the end of the movie? Aren't documents needed? Next, how does the Sorcerer Supreme and Bruce Banner's time law apply to these characters? Wait, wait, wait a second. Let me ask you something. If we can do this, you know, go back in time, why don't we just find baby Thanos, you know, and... First of all, that's horrible. It's Thanos. And secondly, time doesn't work that way. Changing the past doesn't change the future. Think about it. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future. And your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. If you cure Norman Osborn, he's then going to be present to warn... Dr. Octavius before he creates his fusion reactor and his arms. They can both warn Flint Marco before he becomes the Sandman. That drastically changes their realities, especially if Octavius is going back to his timeline with an arc reactor. And the amazing Spider-Man, if Dr. Connors knows about Max Dillon, 
who works at the same company as him, he can warn him before he becomes Electro. They can stop Harry Osborn from becoming the Green Goblin and killing Gwen Stacy. So I thought that was a bit confusing. Did the villains die after they were saved? Because if the rules of Endgame apply here, then that means that Norman's going to be saved, but still impaled by his glider. Or maybe Doc Ock is in the middle of destroying the machine and gets zapped back. He's saved, but he still drowns, and so on and so on. So either Peter did all of this for nothing, or the rules of Endgame were wrong, or Doctor Strange's movie may explain how he and Spidey created new universes. I don't like movies that have to be redeemed later. Even with Endgame, there were these articles that came out explaining things that should have been explained in the movie. I have to judge a movie on what it is at the moment. And to me right now, No Way Home is a good movie with great moments, but I can't really call it a great movie. This movie wasn't a smooth ride. When the credits rolled the first time I saw this movie, I was very mixed. And watching it the second time, I had even more questions as I walked away from it. And I don't think that's the mark of a great movie that explained itself. So I am pretty solid with my rating. Now, of course, people probably do not agree with me because No Way Home is the first live action Spider-Man film to have an A-plus cinema score. And of course, Spider-Verse is the other Spider-Man film that has received that level of acclaim. And of course, the box office tells another side of that story. The movie has reached $587.2 million globally. It is the second highest global opening of all time, beating Avengers Infinity War. It is the first movie to pass $100 million domestically since the pandemic began. Its weekend gross, over $250 million, already makes it the highest grossing movie of the year domestically. So, obviously, there are going to be some people who disagree with me, and that's okay. That's okay. And now we got to talk about Eddie Brock. His inclusion felt so cheap. I legitimately forgot that he was supposed to be in this movie. Literally, his learning about who Peter was was its own stinger at the end of Venom 2. After Electro said that he had hoped for a black Spider-Man, I was thinking maybe he'll be in the stinger and animated Miles Morales in the real world as a joke. But no. Venom's inclusion felt like Flash's deal with Peter in the first act, where Sony is Flash just extorting Marvel into promoting their bullshit, or else they wouldn't get access to their character. The symbiote knows Peter because of a throwaway line about the symbiote hive mind, so I assume it will seek out Peter all the way from Mexico. Okay, we're getting to the tail end of this show, and I'm going to go through two listener questions, so just bear with me. The Culinary Fool on Instagram asked, how do you think they are going to fit Spider-Man into future Avengers films? Well, all the heroes know that Spider-Man exists, and he helps save the world alongside them. So if he rolled up or they reached out to him for help, I don't think that'd be a big deal. If Spider-Man is still in people's memories, could Peter just go to the Avengers facility and Strange and just tell him what's going on? They have been involved in some very fantastical situations, so I don't think it would be that far-fetched for them to not believe him. Peter could tell Strange about the full moon party that he made Wong forget. That could be one of those tell-me-something-only-I-would-know kind of situations that we see in movies. 
It may be sad for Peter for everyone to treat him as if they don't know him, similar to how Happy acted. Doctor Strange's spell only worked for people on Earth, so Thor isn't affected, nor are the Guardians who have some history with Peter. Once they get back, I'm curious as to whether the identity issues will be resolved or if their knowledge of Peter will come into play in those movies. Also, because Scarlet Witch is a telepath, maybe she can tap into Peter's memories and share them with the team. There's an idea. Material Girl B, one of our newer listeners, asked, how huge of an impact will this have on the MCU? I think Doctor Strange's actions will obviously greatly affect the MCU. If Baron Mordo comes around to light that ass up for what he did, I wouldn't blame him. Between this, Loki, and WandaVision, this multiverse stuff is getting out of hand. What this is culminating into seems more terrifying than the conflict with Thanos. He only wanted to wipe out half of the universe. And what if Doctor Strange single-handedly destroyed his universe? He almost did it here. Very curious about where that's going to go. Lastly, if Stan Lee has been verified as a watcher in the MCU, I guess he's been a watcher in literally every universe so all the cameos are watchers just something to think about and i think that's going to do it i hope i covered enough for you do you agree with my rating am i being too hard the interactions were great but yeah i just think it just could have been a little more anyway speaking of changing the universe we'll end the show on de la soul who changed hip-hop forever with their eclectic use of sampling consciousness and rap and of course introducing the hip-hop skit and now these og blurs are in an mcu film how cool is that congrats to the long island legends thank you for listening all the way through everyone um if there's one thing to be grateful for this time is that you all gave me your time have a gentle holiday i know that the holiday season is not happy for everyone but i hope that it is at least gentle to you and if we don't put out a show before then have a happy new year. Of course, we are on Instagram at B-L-E-R-D-P-R-U-P. That's probably the best place to find us at this point. Thank you to Blurred.com, our partners, for sponsoring us and getting this show out. They are a great company, great website, full of nerdy content from a black cultural lens. Once again, y'all take care. Be easy. Peace. No more.